Now that I've had, you know, time and distance, right, um, from the action of acting out in my addiction, I can definitely see there was a lot of thinking going on tied to, you know, not belonging, not feeling worthy. My my biological, and I found this out when I was 16, so I can give you kind of two critical life moments that I now look at and go, ooh, that mattered. And that's a little clip from today's episode with Tara Carber. Can't wait for everyone to hear a little bit more about what Tara shares with us. Uh, Nina, Tara, and I connected pretty well, and uh, we may have even shed some tears together. So it was a great time. Wanted to stop by and remind everybody that we have a new Facebook group, and we would love for you to join it, Diversity on Fire Facebook group, where we're just continuing the conversation. We want to hear what you guys have to say and uh, share some of the things that we're not talking about that you'd like to talk about. We would much appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen that allows you to rate. It does help with algorithms and you know all that fun stuff. Just means more people can find us and share in these conversations. All right. Welcome back to Diversity on Fire. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply and act with more knowledge and compassion. We'll do this by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. This is Heather. This is Nina. And today's guest is self-described as a human who gives a damn. She's a career mindset coach, STEM and trade education advocate, and supporter of all things women. Among these honorable ventures, she's also a recovering addict who knows firsthand what it takes to overcome and has a really interesting new podcast. We are so pleased to welcome to the show, Miss Tara Carbert. Hi, everybody. Thank you. Great to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. I probably should tell your guests that um, I've evolved from career mindset coach. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I kind of we I wove that in there, but we we will talk about yeah, yeah. your new coaching venture. Awesome. Uh, Cuz yeah, I, I did notice I haven't updated LinkedIn yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know if maybe you were doing that as well, but uh, there is a, a there is a decision to be made. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fair enough. That's always good. Well, we did just share a few things about you from like 10,000 feet up. So we know that you have a really deep and winding journey. Would you share a little bit about the personal side of your journey that's brought you to where you are today and inspired the work that you are doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's, you know, that's part of the work, the commitment to, to sharing the story and uh, being a voice for people who maybe aren't there yet, right? And showing them what's possible. So I appreciate the space to do so. Um, I'm a recovering gambling addict. Uh, gambling would be the the addiction that brought me to my knees and crawling into a 12-step room for support and for help, um, but certainly not the only addiction I've had. It was just the one I couldn't stop without help. Um, I would say that I was kind of addicted to self-destructive patterns. And as I entered recovery, I also entered learning all about how to feel and where my feelings were coming from and what to do with them and how to stop silencing the voice inside of me and start listening to it and um, honoring the person I want to be in the world instead of the person the world wanted me to be. Um, So that's really 
It's been a journey. Um, I launched a company a few years ago focused on kind of the core profession I had been in for years, which was recruiting and weaving in. You, you mentioned the STEM and STEM education advocacy. You know, we've got some concerns about the future of our workforce that stemmed <laughs> stemmed from my recruiting. No yeah, no pun intended. That. From my my recruiting for STEM and seeing a lack of females in that, and uh, a lack of diversity in STEM professions and trade professions, and thought, you know, man, like, could my business make a difference in that area? So I started a recruiting business, really focused on some give back um, to that arena. And so that's how I feel that passion a little bit. I'm part of a nonprofit um, and I get involved, you know, locally in, in some things that are going to support STEM education and STEM education awareness and trade school education awareness. So I'm going to take a quick second to just interject. Can you explain to our audience, just in case they're not aware of what STEM is? Yeah, very, very smart. I'm so familiar with that acronym that I sometimes take it for granted that that's automatic for me. Um, it stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. Um, and when we look at, you know, look at the jobs that are available today, and a lot of them are centered around engineering, whether that be computer science engineering or building things and products um, and, and technical things, as well as some of the trade stuff. So, you know, a lot of people are worried about the robots are going to take over the workforce. Well, who's going to build the robots? Who's going to program the robots? Who's going to maintain the robots that are doing that work? And if we don't have people with engineering capability, even that it may suffer from a workforce perspective. Um, so that's what STEM is, though, science, technology, engineering, and math. Perfect. So I'm going to ask another add-on question to that. So one of the things that you said that you have struggled with in your life is the addictions and, and you're recovering. Can you just tell us, kind of going back to probably what you thought your very first addiction was and how old you were when you think that manifested itself initially? Yeah, the first one was nicotine. Um, it manifested in my teen years. I was 17. And I became dependent on cigarettes very quickly. But I would say that was kind of simultaneous with uh, alcohol and drug use. So alcohol, weed, and then that progressed uh, in my teen years um, into some other substances, kind of playing around with things, if you will. Uh, and then I got pregnant and that all kind of stopped except for um, while, so while I was pregnant, that, that all stopped. And then as he got a little bit older, I kind of was like this weekend partier. So I'm like, okay, mom duty's done. Like I get to go have fun. And like every weekend I didn't have him, I was going to the bars or I was doing lines of Coke or whatever. And um, there was some presence of gambling at that time. Um, but it was kind of like I was living in these two worlds. You know, it's kind of holding it together, school, work, momming, and then going crazy on the times that I didn't have homework due or I wasn't at work or I wasn't being mom. So early age. And you said, and you mentioned that there were, obviously you just brought up a couple of them. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like those ones were a little bit easier. But the one thing I want to go back to is you mentioned almost like a cycle of or an addiction to self-destructive behavior. Yeah. yeah. And you also mentioned you had to get into your feelings, which don't we all just love that? It is helpful. I'm not going to be <laughs> discouraging. It is very helpful, but it is not fun in the in like while you're going through it. Oh, it's so um, hard. Yeah. It's so hard. So when you were going through that process of identifying things, were you able to identify what triggered 
the self-destructive side of things. Yeah. I mean, now that I've had, you know, time and distance, right, um, from the action of acting out in my addiction, I can definitely see there was a lot of thinking going on tied to, you know, not belonging, not feeling worthy. My my biological, and I found this out when I was 16. So I can give you kind of two critical life moments that I now look at and go, ooh, that mattered, right? And that's part of the pain I was trying to avoid and not feel. One, I found out <clears throat> when I was 16 that my biological dad committed suicide. I was three when he died, but the story I'd been told most of my life was that he died in his sleep. Factually accurate, he was sleeping in the backseat of a car with a hose from the tailpipe to the window. So, oh, wow. So that happened. And also my grandpa, who was... um a father figure to me. I had a stepfather as well. Uh, my grandpa was a father figure to me and he had a stroke and died. So both of those things kind of come out as I'm in puberty. And so I'm like not belonging in school. I'm like this awkward, you know, preteen, teen, whatever. And I, um, I was not taught how to cope with that grief. I was not, there was nothing modeled to me about how you deal with those things. Both of my parents were alcoholics, um, high-functioning alcoholics, but they were not emotionally equipped. I mean, bad day, bad feeling, have a drink was their response to you know anything painful they did. So I was kind of just modeling the behavior that I was taught, I think, you know. But I, I certainly was operating in some areas of my life like I didn't matter. And if you're walking around with the thought that you don't matter, of course you're going to do stuff to destroy yourself. Yeah, I've heard it said like the feeling. Like you just want to feel, maybe it's attention, maybe it's like the attention to prove that you matter. Yeah, I, I think for me it was to not feel, to not oh. feel, to not feel sad, to not feel hurt, to to feel like I fit in. Right, so it's pretty easy to fit in with a crowd that's using by using. So I went from like this straight A student to the kid who's skipping class and leaving on lunch break to smoke weed behind the bleachers, <laughs> which that. A huge change for your like your teachers and things like that. Yeah. Did they try to intervene at that time or not really? I, I a little bit. I mean, there was like I remember this guidance counselor who like she'd pull me into these group therapy sessions for people who lost. So with my first or second, I, my memory always argues with me. But one of my first days in high school was the knock on the door telling me my grandpa was dead, and she got me into kind of like a group grief thing. But I, in all my, I mean, I I kind of just became manipulative at that point, like, oh, I'm going to group. And like, I'd lie to my teacher and say I was going to that group thing and then not go to the group thing. So she would try to reach out, I think, to 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 my parents to be like, hey, what's going on? I think, you know, I, I don't have the benefit of asking them now. Um, both my parents have passed away. But, you know, I, I can look at that and think about some of the times I received a, a phone call as a parent. And like, it's a phase, right? I think that was probably the response. And I can now acknowledge, you know, my mom was probably going through her own grief and maybe she didn't know how to deal with my grief. My grandma needed her, you know, so I don't, I certainly don't blame them, but yeah, like you look at all the textbook stuff, like there was a problem with that kid. <laughs> it was pretty evident. Right. But it's weird how it feels like so many people don't recognize it. And so more and more of these conversations, I I think some of us are trying to to help other people understand when it might be okay to just check, you know, because I don't know that we do know. I want to ask you this in relation to that then. So you did stop when you were pregnant. 
So you had the presence of mind. Was that because you were shifting value onto your child and that was enough at that point, but it wasn't really, it wasn't, I don't want to say real because it was real, but it wasn't self-motivated. Does that make sense? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I can, I can see like that the idea of a drink or, or consuming a substance was like, yeah, no, like you can wait. You can wait till this kid's not like, I didn't want to make that decision for him. I didn't want to birth him addicted, <laughs> if you will. So I, I didn't have uh, cigarettes. I had a harder time giving up. It took me a little bit longer, but I had no problem not drinking and, and not using substances uh, while I was pregnant. So you went back and forth. You had, you had the ability to stop, but then you went back. Yeah. What was the catalyst to finally like conquer the addictions? Was there an event? Was there of several events? Do you, can you pinpoint when that decision really solidified? Yeah, it's several events for sure. Um, you know, and I kind of pointed to having those two sides of myself. When I was working on like a specific goal or trying to achieve something, I could be very focused on that thing and and very diligent in doing what I needed to do to get that thing done. But there would come this moment where I was like, oh, that's done. Like the substance comes in as a form of celebration or what have you. And candidly, I did not have a great friend circle. Like my friends were that they were partying. I was pretty young when I got pregnant. I was 21 when I got pregnant and 22 when I had him. So I would say when I look at the pattern of use, you know, oftentimes when things were going quote unquote well in life, or I had some other thing that needed my attention, I would pour myself into that thing almost also to a self-destructive way though, like overworking, over committing meeting other people's needs before my own. So whether I was using substances or a behavior, gambling and like when gambling took root, uh, definitely would be after my grandmother died in 2010. She lived in the last five years of her life, maybe a little longer, but uh, in another state, but she would come to visit me twice per year. And oftentimes we would go together to the casino and play slots. And after she died, it became this connection to her that when I went to the casino, I felt like I was spending time with her. And then, sorry. And then like a year later, my, um, not like a year later, <clears throat> a year later, almost to the day, my sister and I found our father dead. Um, that was like, that was it. Like I couldn't, I, that's when the gambling started to spiral out of control. That's when I started to go to the casino for every form of escape and when it started to really creep in and affect other things. But there were times in my 20s where that same thing happened and someone would say to me like, hey, what's going on? Is this thing a problem for you? And I'd be like, oh yeah, you're right. I probably shouldn't do that. Right? But with this time, I was a li little bit older. I wasn't sharing money with anybody. My accountability for time was pretty limited to work and my son. And my son was older and pretty self-sufficient, could cook dinner, put himself to bed. And I would just go on these binges and and not go home. Sometimes after work, I would go to the, straight to the casino and be like, hey, like, you're good. Like, mom's gonna, your mom's got some stuff she wants to do. I need, you know, I need a little free time or whatever. He's like, yeah, I'm going to so-and-so's for for a little baseball. And then, uh, and then I'm going to, you know, I, I can grab dinner, mom. I'll see you when you get home. No problem. And then I'd call him at bedtime and be like, Hey, I'm going to be a little later. Are you cool with putting yourself to bed? And then I freaking get home at five or six in the morning, just in time to make sure he got up for school. Wow. That was kind of the end of it. Like that, that at its worst, that's how bad it, it got. Okay. Well, I mean, that's still pretty bad. You weren't tethered to a lifeline. And this is where we get into the, to the, you know, maybe too much information, but I have somebody in my immediate family 
who has a serious gambling issue. So it sounds like you're, I think, what's considered a passive gambler, right? Like slots, and then active gambling is more poker. Am I right? It's been a while. Oh, since I did I it, Alvina. <laughs> let's not not pretend I had a favorite. So it actually, so it's my relationship with gambling. (laughs) And if I'm like stomping on a question, feel free to just interrupt me and redirect me. Oh no, I want to hear this. Okay. (laughs) So yeah. So I started gambling. Like I was my grandpa's sidekick at the BFW when he played poker with his war buddies or like buck a point cribbage, or I'd help him pull his, open his pull tabs, or we'd look at his numbers. So like if it involved a bet, I would play. Um, But I kind of fell in love with poker a little bit because that was a thing. I I have this thing about relationships with dead people in these actions, I think to some degree. And when when poker was kind of a big deal, I'd go to this poker club here in the Twin Cities and I would play and I would feel like such a hot shit being the girl at the table who scooped the pot. And like, because everyone, you know, like underestimate the girl at the table because she can't possibly know how to play poker, but I've been learning how to play poker since I was five. Same with blackjack. Like my grandpa kind of taught me how to count cards. So it actually started with cards for me. And then I took like my winnings from from playing a card game. Like, oh, what's the slot machine? Grandma likes these slots. And I developed more of a relationship with slot machines after grandma died, uh, where it became this thing where I would play her favorite machines and I would think about her and kind of but man, any kind of gambling, really. I mean, even like obsessive about the fantasy football leagues that work would put on or, a, you know, there's a lottery pool. It's like, does everyone want to put a five bucks? I'm like, I'll put a hundred. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like anything. Are you a thrill yeah. seeker? I would say I have a pattern of risk taking um, that okay. I can see, like even in healthy, healthy risks, right? Like um, rock climbing is something I find to be fun or cliff diving. So I'm, I'm, I definitely would would consider myself a thrill seeker, a risk taker, which is great for the entrepreneurial profile too, but not so great when you're talking about gambling or substance use. It sounds like there's so many different pieces weaving together because Mm -hmm. you've got a lot, a lot of loss, you know, hard loss, grief, people that you were close to, and the fact that those people's memory was tied to some of the behaviors and then that coupled with the grief, it kind of spun that out of control. And then, of course, the risk taking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to to un- unwind from once right. you're kind of wa- wrapped up in it. Right. Yeah. And now it's more like, well, how can I love that part of myself and channel it in a way that serves my goals and serves what I believe to be my purpose in the world and is not... <clears throat> an unhealthy, self-defeating, self-destructive pattern. Yeah. So what did it take? What did it take to finally? So, I mean, I, I, you know what? I realized I was going to assume something and I shouldn't. Do you participate in any type of gambling activity at all now? I don't. Um, So I entered a 12-step program. My last day gambling was July 30th of 2016. The phrase I like to say now is I haven't placed a bet on anything but myself since that day. I had kind of a it, I wouldn't even classify it as a slip because it was free bingo. Um, so there wasn't really any risk, but but it felt like action to me when I lost by one number on a coverall bingo. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I can't even, you know, I can't even do that. So no. And I even like, even when people in everyday language will say something like, want to bet? And I'm like, no, nope, I don't bet anymore. So no betting. Okay. So no, which is good because I was I, I was going to assume that you didn't because my my family member, I don't feel like they can do anything 
like I mean, they're not past it either. But I, I feel like I can't in any way contribute to like, you know, anything that would even, you know, kind of go down that road. So for you specifically, what did it take to get you to go to the 12 step program? And was that the first step or was that kind of a culmination of steps? Yeah, I, I, I think I've been telling this story wrong. I've been reflecting on this a little bit more. And the 12 step program was my first time seeking help for the gambling problem. I had been doing um, two things, one therapy and two, starting to consume some self-help content and um, really looking at myself and my goals and how I was not, you know, how, how the things that I was doing were certainly not going to help me in attaining any of the goals I had for my life. So the day, like the day that I decided to go get that help specifically in a 12-step program, you know, I'd kind of had this internal chatter going on, like, you need to stop this. And I'd try and I'd make promises to myself and then I would break them. And I just could not stop no matter what was happening. And I had talked about it in therapy and she never even mentioned the idea. It was actually somebody who I saw in the casino who told me about GA. Um, and I knew a lot of people who'd recovered from other addictions using 12-step programs. So the day that I kind of would classify as my rock bottom, um, I had gambled away my whole paycheck in a in just just a few hours. And I had this moment, fleeting thought of um, I'm worth more dead than alive. And I was not, you know, I don't want to die. I definitely don't want to die. I got stuff here on this earth that I still want to do that scared the shit out of me. And I'd gambled my whole paycheck and was really like that was kind of it. I was like, okay, you, you, now you you have to quit. My son was about to go to college. There was a tuition payment coming due and I had a high earning job. So if I just stopped gambling, I might be able to clean up the mess. Despite the debt or what have you, I, I could see a way out if I just stopped engaging in the behavior. I think that it's so hard for me and I assume a lot of people to keep promises to yourself. And in these situations, you're the only one that can make that real commitment. So I can see where it would be a really hard cycle to break out of because you mentioned coming to that point of, you know, the thought not wanting to die necessarily, but that thought that you were worth more dead than alive. Mm -hmm. What would you share, you know, if anybody is listening that whether it's gambling or anything else, what would you share maybe advice or just a tip for someone that's struggling with that that is in a point right now where they don't see the way out? Maybe they don't have a high-paying job. Maybe they don't have enough of a support system or a child. They just they just see that there's no way out. What would you say to them? A hundred percent, I would say you're not alone. As alone as you think you are, as devast as much devastation as you've created in your life, there are millions, literally millions of people ready to love you and support you and help you get to your version of good. And I know it doesn't feel like it in that moment. I know it feels like no one cares. I know it feels like it's never going to stop. But when you extend your hand for that help, there are so, so, so many people who understand you and have been down this road and through that version of hell already, and they're ready to kind of douse the flames that are burning around you and, and help you see the way, whether that's financial or housing or job 
or, you know, just getting up and brushing your teeth in the morning. Awesome. And I do want to get into Ambitious Addicts coaching as well as your podcast. Um, But before we jump into those, I know that Nina, you had some questions just being that this is really close to you in terms of what it's like to be a spectator, a close spectator. Do you want to? Yeah. So one of the things that I personally have struggled with in this situation, which yours is a little bit different. It sounds like you didn't, you know, really have a, a strong life anchor, but in my situation, it also, the gambling was also introduced by other family and mm-hmm. it was part of, it was part of a cycle that they had, which it wasn't as destructive. And, you know, that family, that family member, but it became destructive, you know, for my immediate family member. I find that I don't know how to navigate this concept of trying to be a helper and a buoy or an enabler. It seems so challenging. I haven't, you know, I I sought some help for that, but I there wasn't a lot of resources that I could find at the time. I, for example, in my situation, I was able to get them to ban themselves from two states. And then they discovered, you know, Native American land. (laughs) There's always some kind of way around it. And as far as, you know, kind of that slightly vague, but a little bit of an understanding background, what do you think is most helpful for family members or loved ones to consider and or do as they try to navigate that space with those relationships? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's look out for yourself, right? Um, If somebody is still actively gambling, they have the potential to create financial devastation in your world (laughs) by stealing from you or stealing your identity and or um, making promises to you that they don't keep, which is- And it's very, very common, yeah. 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 And so, I mean, part of that, like specifically for gambling, there's Gammonon as a support organization. Um, each of the states has a, a problem gambling alliance and there's a national problem gambling alliance as well. But you're just like with every other addiction, the person actually has to want the help and not and kind of be out of the place where they're wanting to find ways around the people trying to help them. And it's so hard to detach, like that loving detachment. I don't know if you guys read up on codependency ever, but Loving detachment is really the best way to support somebody. And it's it's so hard, right? Because you just want them to get better. You want to be part of the solution. But at the same time, their continued use affects your emotional health. And you, you know, you deserve to to preserve your own sanity and not become insane because of somebody else's addiction. Which I think is is really important. And so what I'd like you to do actually is take a little bit of time if you would and talk about the codependency aspect, because I will tell you that I am not somebody who ever considered myself codependent. I thought codependency was people who needed other people. Yeah. And I never realized that the people that other people need is the other half of that, right? You don't really think about that, but I turned into that other half a lot. Yeah. And I'm not a fixer. Like, I wouldn't tell you that's my natural. um, I want things to be better for people, but I'm not a seeker outer of trying to fix people. I'm not like, I don't like really like the drama, but there is something about me that, you know, that (laughs) brings it to me. And so when you're on that side and you don't understand how it is that you're contributing um, to it, I I think that might be helpful for people to hear because, um, because there's some responsibility to be had there. And I, I still struggle with it personally, but I do understand that it that that it actually is a real thing. So Nina, 
can I clarify? I just want to clarify, Nina, what that I'm following what you're saying. So your struggle is with being the other side of a codependent situation. So maybe that person is has a codependent personality, but they're attracted to you because of the way that you support them. And therefore, you're the other side of the codependent relationship. Is that what you're saying, Nina? That and in that as the other side of it, I need to recognize it as well. And so, you know, what her experience has been with helping people in that kind of navigate that. So she's familiar with the concept of it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I share that with you, Nina. I was like, I'm not codependent. I'm really independent. What is that? You know, I, I thought that it meant that you were dependent upon other people and not that you were letting people be dependent on you. And I think, um, like the definition is um, that that someone's got an emotional reliance on you for support. But in order for that to happen, you have to allow their emotional reliance on you. So if every time somebody makes a bad decision related to their addiction, so say for, just give myself as an example, right? I blew more money than I should have. I'm falling short on my budget for the month because I gambled too much money and I call a friend to borrow money. And my friend is like, what, it, what? Why? You make this much money. Like, why? And I tell a lie. Oh, I made a mistake. You know, I made up some bullshit. And they gave me the money. Instead of, no, you're like a 38-year-old woman with a high-earning job. Like, figure out your shit. I'm here if you're in an emergency. But this doesn't sound like an emergency. This sounds like you being really immature and irresponsible with your money. And so those are, you know, kind of two different ways that that conversation would have gone. And and my friends who who liked to be my hero, not a fixer, but but they consider themselves to be helpers and caring and kind. I knew that those people would say yes. That makes sense. <laughs> and I was also one of those people at the same time to other addicts. Sorry, Heather. No, that's okay. So it sounds like it's the enabler. So it's the codependent person seeking out an enabling person, someone who's not going to ask the hard questions that you know, maybe is not comfortable with it, or or maybe they the sun just shines brighter for them, and <laughs> they don't see the the issues at hand. So they're they're rather than helping you, they're enabling you. Yeah, and I think like at the core of it, it's probably really really innocent. So like that the enabler doesn't often know that that's what they're doing, right? right. They, they're like, I'm helping my friend. Like it's not they don't but. If you're a helper by nature and you like to help people and you like to be a reliable friend and that's part of your own identity, not to the point of getting taken advantage of per se, but it can start to feel that way, right? When somebody's taking and taking and taking and there's no reciprocal relationship in that friendship, that's a clear signal that maybe you're in a codependent relationship. You don't have to be a codependent person to end up in a codependent relationship. Yes. that's And then that's where the resentment builds. And so- mm-hmm. That's kind of where that healthy detachment comes from is that you have to maybe be a little bit more discerning with your relationships and what what's actually happening inside of them, right? Yeah, and setting a boundary like with love, with love. I need all the information on <laughs> loving detachment. And it's not related to addiction, but I'll tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> there are sometimes relationships in your life that you start to realize are just exhausting. Mm-hmm. For 
one reason or another. Right. And so I love that term because now I'm going to go on a Google phrase uh, craze and uh, learn as much as I can about that. So thank you. You're welcome. And I think it's all, I mean, I was guilty of this. It was a total people pleaser too. So for me, it, you know, kind of like walking on eggshells around certain personalities because if I behaved, quote unquote, a certain way, then they wouldn't blow up. And oh. And that, I mean, that's also, you know, that's kind of a codependency pattern, right? You're like tailoring the way that you behave or the way that you act in the world around that individual to avoid whatever form of explosion that might be for them. And yeah. like, like taking on the responsibility for their explosion, like it's your fault that you didn't behave the way that they wanted you to in the world. Um, loving detachment, you think about the attic, Nina, for you, I think, you know, it's, it's having the, um, opportunity to sit down and have a difficult conversation with your health, yourself about like, what help am I willing to do? And what, what will I allow? When will I allow this relationship? And I, I have a I have a certain relationship in my life with a good friend who I had to say to her one day about a totally different situation. Which was like, honey, I get it, but you're still here. It's been seven years and I'm sorry. I can't hear this anymore. I can't be your sounding board for this. I love you. And when you're ready for real help, I'm here. I will drive you. I will take you wherever you got to go. But I can't be your sounding board for complaining about this anymore because you're creating this at this point. It's a choice. And it's hard. Uh, oh, that sounds exactly like a situation that just happened in my life earlier this year. And hi, because I know you're listening and you know that I'm talking about you. <laughs> I won't say what <laughs> Sometimes no. it happens. But, <laughs> but it's okay. So, but that was what happened is for over a decade, this person was in a situation that it, it was not good. And they somehow were able to compartmentalize it to a certain degree that, you know, they, they use the, well, the good outweighs the bad, even though it really didn't. But eventually I just shut myself off from it entirely. But I made it clear, as did other people, that. When you are ready, you have an army. We're waiting. And that person became ready and we showed up right. on like their time. 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so right. Yeah. right. I right. On their on their time. But at the same time, you got to preserve your own exposure to that because it sounds like maybe that person was in a bad, you know, a bad circumstance and they were choosing to stay. And that hurts us too. Like oh, watching so our friend. Yeah, like watching our friend be in pain when we know. Like this is a solvable problem. Doesn't matter what the problem is. If we know that's a solvable problem, like we really want to be somebody who helps them, but not when it's hurting us. <laughs> um, and you know, you can only handle for so long until you have to do some form of of loving detachment. I think that's so important that we're discussing this because one of the things that sometimes gets lost, although I don't know that it does, but it doesn't. We just don't give voice to it, right? is the familial destruction. Like we always think of terms, you know, addicts in terms of one person, but really it's, it's, there's usually a wake of, of collateral damage. And personally, I know that part of it is not sometimes being able to distinguish when people are really asking for help and when they're not asking for help and then being very, very afraid of not being there and something happening when you should have. And oh. so erring on the side of caution over and over and over again, because you don't want to have to be the person that when this goes badly, especially with addiction. And as you mentioned, um, suicidal tendencies, they run very, very strongly correlated. There is that fear that 
that you don't really know. And that's the part I'm still navigating how to work through that. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, the suicidal thing, I mean, never, never hesitate to, to call the suicide hotline or, or take someone to the ER, even if, even if you're not sure if it's real. Right. Cause I think, I think sometimes people will say, and you, you can cut this if it's not a message you want, but I think there, there are some people who use a threat of suicide as an attention seeking. But in my mind, like you always take it seriously, get them to the ER, get them on the suicide hotline, get them the support. It's nothing to joke about. Um, and, it, and if you've got concerns, like always answer the phone for the person who may be suicidal. Okay. I think that it needs to be said. And, and, and that's why we wouldn't cut it because sometimes people don't want to say the things that are hard, but, but I, I did do this for this person once they really, really resented it. Um, but I, I was like, I can't have that. So they haven't done it again. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I called and did a welfare check on you because you threatened you were going to take your own life. And now you're mad at me because I wanted to save your life. Stay mad. Yeah. Stay mad. Go so ahead and stay you, mad. <laughs> you're right. No, I. but it's good to hear it. And, and, I, and I think because I need to hear it, there's, like you said, there's other people that need to hear it too. So we've kind of been dealing with, you know, um, this side of it, which is not having the addictive personality type, but, but you're a coach. I'm going to kind of let you and discuss that. I think Heather probably can format a question better than I am because I'm still absorbing some of what you've said, but the other part of it. Yeah. So I'd love to get into, because here's the thing. Um, we haven't talked about this yet, but you deserve a lot of credit because you took what was and could have continued to be a very devastating situation for yourself and your family, and you created something amazing. So you did the work. You continue to do the work because let's be clear, I I can't speak for you or anyone else, but my understanding is that this is a lifelong thing that you deal with. It does not just one and done. And you created Ambitious Addicts Coaching. So in its, I'm going to want to kind of ask you to explain the concept and what you're doing with that. Yeah. So today I'm offering breakthrough one-on-one coaching with women in recovery um, from any addiction with one or more years free from use, if you will, who are finding themselves really kind of stuck in a pattern of regretting the past but at the same time, wanting to believe in the future, maybe if they've got some goals and they'll start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. And I'm really helping them kind of break through by applying a model of thought work. I was a recipient of coaching like this. It helped me a lot with my self-awareness. And then the application of the coaching and the daily practice, I needed some help kind of understanding how to apply that in my life. So I do one-on-one coaching with women. It's mindset focused um, because we use thought work as a tool. I am a person in recovery, so I may pull in 12 steps. That's the program I did, but I may not. You know, Some of that is really tailored to and for the woman who approaches me, me. So it's designed with you for you coaching. We usually start with one or four core concepts. It seems like 90% of the time it's how to believe in myself. <laughs> and, and that's one-to-one coaching. And they, they do 12 sessions with me with the ultimate goal being that they then learn how to coach themselves uh, at the end of that. So I want them to never need me again. <laughs> and then the podcast is an opportunity for me to share some of that knowledge, tidbits of that knowledge at no charge. Uh, and also I'm, I'm building some bite-sized digital courses so that there's like a workbook and a little bit of guided I don't know, instruction, if you will, about that week's homework from me, but at a really, really affordable price because coaching is expensive, but it's helped me so much amplify my success in recovery 
and in achieving goals and in not caring what other people think about all the five personalities I have on my LinkedIn profile and, and just go <laughs> forward. Right. <laughs> yes. Oh no, no. I was just going to say, it, I, I like to, I, you know, I like to coach, coach it, couch it, whatever the word is as an investment as far instead of being expensive, because it really is an investment in yourself and and it pays the dividends. A hundred percent. And actually, yeah, that's close to what I was going to say is that it may, it may seem expensive initially, but I love, love, love what you said that your goal is to get them to a place where they don't need it anymore. That I think is key because I promise anybody listening, you are worth the investment. And so it is actually a heck of a lot cheaper in the long run. Yeah, I think of the ROI on my own coaching and uh yeah. It's really high. a lot of money. Yeah, like I would I would choose, you know, to pay the bill for my my coaching over like having a car payment and buying a new car. Well, your quality of life, there's nothing that can really there there's no comparison and and quality of life is something that we don't really fully appreciate it until we don't have it anymore right and then all of a sudden you're like holy crap if i could redo this and and so you're offering them an opportunity to regain that and there's so much power within that yeah and i chose like on purpose that moment you know one or more years in abstinence because i think this is personal opinion um i, I think that mastering sobriety in whatever form that comes for you and learning how to manage urges, and that's all part of your recovery. So the one-to-one coaching and pushing people forward towards big goals, I kind of want to wait until they feel really kind of like they've got a good foundation for their version of sobriety before we attempt that breakthrough stuff. So I just want to point out, um, I asked you earlier, anyone that's struggling that doesn't see a way out, I would like to direct them because your podcast is free and it is tidbits that if anybody is listening and and feels like they might be in that position, check it out. I mean, you've got, are you four episodes in right now? Five and releasing number six tomorrow. Yeah, so exciting. The whole new fun thing to learn, how to be a podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) It's always... All kinds of, actually, we have a blast. We have a we do have a blast because Heather's a heavy lifter. But (laughs) (laughs) Nina's like, I just show up (laughs) most of the time. She does most of the time. Even that's challenging. But yeah. Um, but okay, so sorry, back to your podcast. So, um, I would recommend everybody check that out because I have listened to it. I actually love that the way that you have it set up where they're shorter episodes. I don't know if you're going to change formatting at any point, but I love that they're, they are kind of bite size. So they're super, super easy to, you know, dive into. And it's not like an, there's not an overwhelm to it. Yeah. The format will stay the same when it's just me. And then when I have guests, it's going to, you know, kind of just depend on the length and how much editing I want to do. So the guests, guests will be probably 30 to 30 to 60 minutes tops. Um, I don't think I'll ever have an episode longer than 60, but I, I try to keep the things of just me talking um, 20 minutes or under. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Thanks. So the ambitious addicts coaching, I saw on your website that it, it kind of, it's like an extension for people of the 12 step program. Can you help us understand what might be missing within the 12 step program or why we would necessarily need an extension? Yeah. And I don't think it's an extension. I mean, that phrase beyond the 12 steps is, is, um, 
almost reflective of my own personal experience. When I hit this point in my recovery where I wanted to go after some big goals, there were people in recovery giving me the be careful message, you know, like, oh, oh, be careful. Like that might be a trigger. I don't know. What if you, you know, what if, especially with, you know, gambling, you, you put some financial stakes uh, at risk when you're, when you're starting a business too. And so I, there was some messaging going around, like, don't push yourself too hard. Don't create overwhelm. Don't create frustration. Don't create disappointment. And, and I, by having all that messaging, it kind of did do that. Yeah, a little bit. It almost was like, like, just stay, you know, <laughs> stay in your little lane and just keep doing what you're doing, even though what you're doing is part of what you wanted to escape. And it was almost like, well, don't, you know, don't go too big. So I want to honor recovery and it doesn't need to be 12 steps, but like honor the ambitious side of oneself while also being mindful of, hey, I've also got you know, these addictive patterns in my life and how do I practice mindfulness and look out for, you know, things that maybe used to make me want to use, like how are those same things maybe going to be obstacles in my success in achieving new goals as I set them for myself. And I just, I just don't want people to believe that they have to choose between going after their goals or maintaining their recovery. And I, I think there's an opportunity to go beyond your daily 12-step work or weekly or however, if you are a 12-stepper, and also push through to things beyond that level of um, self-care uh, and, and incorporating other things. So it's it's mo more like additive as opposed to replacement by any means. There we go. You know what it makes me think of? And so Heather's going to really love this, but... <laughs> I always relate everything right now to like superheroes. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but right now I was like, what you just said, if I wanted to put a personification to it that almost anybody could recognize would be Robert Downey Jr. Because right. he came from such a challenging place. And then look at what he's been able to accomplish because he was able to go ahead and allow himself to figure out how to work outside of those things. Um, but then still push for the absolute most in life and, and be successful at it. Yeah, and be an even better actor than anyone ever gave him possible, anyone ever believed was possible about him. And so then do you have any recommended resources like books, documentary, anything like that that you feel would be helpful for people to check out? Yeah, for sure. So for addiction in general, I would say there's this book um, that I'm kind of into right now. I love to read. So this is today's recommendation. But if you ask me next week, I'll probably have a new one for you. Um, it's called What's Right With You? Debunking Dysfunction and Changing Your Life. And it really talks about kind of focusing on your strengths instead of focusing on the things that need fixing within you and uh, helps with a, a little bit of reframing, if you will, some negative self-talk. So I think anyone can benefit from a book like this. And then for gambling specifically, there's definitely state GA uh, websites. Uh, if you Google anything, Gamblers Anonymous and your state, you will get directed to your state resources. There's also the National Problem Gambling Awareness Council. Um, they've got great resources. And then I would also say there's great podcasts <laughs> out there. And one that I specifically in understanding gambling addiction and gambling as a societal challenge and what's coming and, and looking globally at gambling is called All In, the Addicted Gamblers podcast. 
Um, it was started by a guy named Brian Hatch, and he started it as part of his own recovery journey to just like talk about gambling and his gambling addiction. But it's evolved now where he's got all these gambling experts who come on from all over the world and they talk about gaming addiction and gambling addiction and new legislature that's coming around around sports books and advertising and what's happening in the UK and Australia. It's so kind of neat if you want to geek out on gambling addiction. That is a, a fantastic, fantastic resource. Awesome. Awesome. Those sound amazing. Uh, where can people connect with you? Uh, I do have an Instagram account and a Facebook page that have both been started up. Um, you can find links to all of those in the show notes for the Ambitious Addicts podcast. You can find the Ambitious Addicts podcast on all the channels, I believe, <laughs> where podcasts <laughs> exist. No one has said, hey, we didn't find you here to me yet. Um, and I, I certainly haven't gone and searched them all. But the the majors, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, I, I know it's present in all those places. And of course, my website, ambitiousaddicts.com. Um, also open to DMs if anyone wants to talk about their own gambling, you know, happy to be a supportive person in your network. If you are continuing seeking help or you are early in recovery and you just need someone else who understands your way of thinking, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be a resource for you as well. Um, I want to talk about one thing related to your guys' podcast, if you don't mind, for a second. Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, a diversity on fire um, <laughs> is something I'm, I personally am passionate about. And um, I'm in Minneapolis. So let's say that that's been amplified quite a bit um, this year in particular, but certainly that's always been a, an area of concern for me. And as I look at gambling, not just gambling, but 12-step programs, and I look at, but I'll, I'll talk about my 12-step program since that's the rooms I'm in. I look at the population in the room that I walk into every week to have my home group meeting, almost all white and very heavy male. And I contrast that with what I see when I walk into the casino or I'm standing in line at the grocery store and there's a big line at the lotto vending machine or at the pull tab booth at the bar or at purse bingo. And that is not an, a majority white space by any means. Um, better reflects our population. And so I just kind of want to do a call out. Like if anyone who is a listener of your podcast has experience in a 12-step program where they felt like they weren't represented in the room and how that impacted their recovery because I'd really like to be partnering in my local community to to help others understand, you know, how do we reach this still suffering problem gambler who doesn't look like us? And so since there's people caring about diversity listening to your podcast, I, I definitely am welcoming, inviting and um, open to having guests on on that topic too. Yay. And thank for thank you for mentioning that because I do think that is super important. So basically what you're saying is that in the groups and the meetings and the programs that you've been in, you are definitively seeing a major lack of diversity and you don't think that that represents all of the people that actually suffer from the addiction. Yeah, I know it doesn't. They're not represented in those groups. And therefore, we've talked mm -hmm. about this, representation matters. So if you are a person of color or if you're a female and walking into a white male-dominated room, you're not going to feel as comfortable. Right. Or even beyond that, what, what I'm wondering now that you say it, and it's definitely going to be worth my time to do some research on, is if the messaging isn't being reached so the reaching the intended audience, meaning that the people who have the resources and the support to get there look a certain way, because that's what it feels like it might be. And if these other audiences, 
people give up on them because they don't think they count or matter as much and don't have the the time and attention dedicated to to helping them help themselves. And so that would be worth looking into for sure on my side. I think I that's that's an interesting uh, conundrum. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's part of that. It's part of that outreach. I think Nina, and we're working to solve that here. Like we just, we need to get in community and be like, Hey, we're here, we're here and ready to support any and everyone who may, but there are some, as always happens when you, you try to challenge the demographics of a group that you're in, you know, there's a little, yeah, not only trust issues, but I think about like the, the people I brought this to in my own, we have like a, um, a board, for lack of a better way to phrase it, who talks about, you know, our statewide community of GA. And when I raised the issue, there was a, there was some immediate kind of like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not a problem. Why is that a problem? And I'm like, have you been to a casino? Like, uh, guarantee, like not everybody in the casino is white, but we're like all white. Every single one of us at this table is white. So what's going on? And you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, that's white people medicine. I'm like, well, if that's exactly how people in the community think, feel, let I want to hear that from the people in the community and not make this assumption that they don't want our help or our program. So. Right. Or that you might need to learn how to frame it differently. Because mm-hmm. I mean, we're going through it right now with vaccines. Although what we're finding is that right now, a lot of that resistance with education went down. So sometimes it's And that's the whole part of doing the work, which is what we're all doing with our various podcasts and our missions is just doing the work to be like, how can we reach people? And that doesn't always look the same. Yeah. So anyone out there want to have that conversation? I'm I'm happy to brainstorm, network, have you on as a guest because I, I, you know, recovery touches every, or not recovery, but addiction. Addiction touches everybody. I want to make sure that recovery is accessible to everybody too. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, And we will make sure to get all of your links as well and put them on our show notes, but definitely encourage everybody to go check out your projects, um, go to your website and connect on social media. You are so amazing. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Thank you guys. Thanks, Tara. Thanks for listening in today. Our goal is to inspire you to think more deeply, and we hope today's conversation with Tara did just that. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed on today's episode are our own. We do encourage you to do your own research and come to your own fact-based conclusions. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss, or if you'd like to be a guest on our show, please reach out by email, info at diversityonfire.com, or you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at diversityonfire. Don't forget to join our new Facebook group and throw us a five-star review and comment on Apple Podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. And please share the show with everyone you know so more people can join in these important conversations. Stop silencing the voice inside of me and start listening to it. Mm -hmm.